This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four through time, to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't, further down the line. guests are Darsha Narvaez and Gay Bradshaw. They're the authors of this book we'll be talking about, The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. Darsha Narvaez is Professor Emerita of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame. She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Education Research Association, the Association for Psychological Science and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. That's a lot of American associations there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She studies moral development and human flourishing from an interdisciplinary perspective, integrating anthropology, neuroscience, clinical, developmental, and educational sciences. She's published hundreds of papers and authored over 20 books, including the multiple award-winning book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, and more recently, Restoring the Kinship Worldview. Indigenous Voices introduce 28 precepts for rebalancing life on planet Earth with 
Wahinkpe Topa. Gay Bradshaw is the founder and director of the Kurulus Center for Nonviolence. She holds doctoral degrees in ecology and psychology and was the first scientist to recognize and diagnose PTSD in elephants, chimpanzees, orcas, and other animals. Her books include the Pulitzer-nominated Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Teach Us About Humanity, Carnivore Minds, Who These Fearsome Animals Really Are, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell, and also The Elephant Letters, the story of Billy and Connie. And she's the director and primary carer for rescued domesticated animals and indigenous wildlife at Grace Village, formerly the Tortoise and Hare Sanctuary. So Darsha and Gay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tonio. I just love this book so much. It brought together two wonderful areas of interest for me. And I'm curious, how did the two of you come together to work on this? Well, I'll start. You know, the idea of the evolved nest has been my passion for the last almost 20 years. And I have been trying to find ways to explain it to the public and to get the word out. And so we have the website, evolvenest.org. And I've written a number of academic papers, but who reads those? <laughs> so I was looking around for a way to reach the public in a in a different way. And then it just uh, occurred to me because Gay is such a brilliant writer and has the similar kind of orientation to nurturing, but from a, our animal kin perspective. And she's so amazing in how she writes. So I asked if, you know, we could collaborate. And so after, you know, some fits and starts of what we we're going to do together, we came up with this. So we're really happy that we were able to get this product out. You know, I, I echo Darsha in talking about a lot of my writing has been, you know, a- academically in, in, and like Darsha, interdisciplinary oriented, but still aiming at sort of an academic um, and I would say activist but it's a little frustrating because again, it's it, there is that division between quote unquote the public and academia, and and it really is some of the the principles or all of the principles are so common sense and really important to put into practice. And I had been kicking around for a while, you know, I've been talking about for almost like Darsha said for twenty some years, I've been talking about transspecies psychology, which is just a name that I gave to this understanding that's tacit in science and neuroscience and biomedical sciences, that all animals have the same brains and brain structures that govern all the processes that we cherish, thinking, feeling, consciousness, all of those things. And uh, that's a real challenging concept, just like Darsha's work is really challenging, even though it's extremely well documented in science as well as common sense. And so what I was trying to do too, is to also find a kind of a sideways door in the sense of trying to reach people, maybe through their hearts. And so I've been trying to work on maybe a workshop or something like that on nature-based parenting that would reach out to not just parents or families, but but anyone, um, like our book is really directed for everyone and anyone that would touch their hearts, you know, and to sort of open up the blinds of this conditioning, which really is a terrible myth that we're separate and superior to other animals. And so 
Darsh and I had interacted uh, for yeah. several years, but it was really yeah. fortuitous that these came together, our, our work yeah. came together. And I think in such a beautiful and powerful way, because it, in a way, I think just from comments that I've received, yeah. that people just feel yeah. a kind of sense of relief yeah. that we are part of nature yeah. and that we really share with animals. Yeah. And I would say plants, yeah. but this focuses on animals um, so much, a, a common heritage. You have a, an animal with you. Who's with you? Oh, um, this is uh, Monsi. She's a almost 12-year-old rabbit. She was a woman who became homeless, had her as a rabbit for about four years and called to see if we would take her in because she could no longer care for her. I thought it was a real noble act, putting the welfare of her beloved rabbit before her own emotional needs. And so she came here and um, just about two years ago, Monsi suffered a couple of strokes, and so she's here like a lot of the rabbits and our tortoises. We have uh, 15 tortoises. They're desert tortoises that are disabled. They've lost an arm or a leg. So her care is really reflected in the evolved nest principles. Yeah, I was just going to ask what that sound was. So that's that's her. Yeah, you can hear her. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's her. She has a little kind of a snore. <laughs> so for me, I mean, I've always loved animals. I've always felt a strong heart connection to animals. And this book was just full of that for me. And many years ago, I had read Jean Laidloff's The Continuum Concept, which opened my eyes and changed the way I see children and parenting. And then in this book, the stories you told of the way African elephants and sperm whales raise their children and birth their children in this deeply caring way that you call the evolved nest, that was so profoundly moving to me. And of course, in our culture, humanity in its modern wisdom thinks it knows better and has created quite an emotional and psychological and of course, physical disaster for itself, for ourselves and for all of life. So how do you work with those differences in your work, the natural way of raising children versus the modern human way that is devolved so tragically. Right. Well, this is something I do write about quite a bit. Um, there's a long history of degrading the evolved nest over the last millennia, and it's just gotten so much worse with uh, industrialization and, well, of course, colonization techno science, behaviorism, all these crazy ideas that were separate from nature and, oh, we can control it. And, oh, I have a good model in my head. I'm going to apply to the world. That's left brain stuff. What we do when we undercare for children, meaning they don't receive the evolved nest, it's not provided by the community, is you undermine right brain development, right hemisphere development, which is scheduled to happen more rapidly in the early years. And when you have an underdeveloped right hemisphere, that means your social, emotional, ecological intelligences are underdeveloped. You don't know how to get along very well. That's a attachment. Insecure attachment is a signal of things gone wrong because forever after you can't deal with intimate relationships. You don't know how to recognize trustworthy mates. You don't know how to maintain friendships. You don't know how to self-regulate yourself in your negative feelings and all sorts of things that are related to social emotional intelligence. And that's just, you know, one little piece of it, attachment issues. So what we've done is by forcing mothers away from nurturing, 
forcing communities away from it, and this is patriarchy's doing over time. Males in charge, we, we know from the anthropology that's looked at all sorts of history and, and ethnographies and summarized it, when men take over a society, child well-being degrades because it's the women, the moms, the female coalitions that actually come together to protect and guard child well-being. But guys get caught up in rivalry. They get caught up in hierarchy. They get caught up in their own testosterone-fueled <laughs> interests. And guys who are separate from away from children, their testosterone is going to rise. And that's what we do routinely, right? We keep guys away from children. That's not our heritage. Our heritage is to be in multi-generational bands. You live together and you're always around children. You're always nurturing. And unless you go off hunting, of course, and it's the tribes when they get more complex that separate men for a few days to get their testosterone up so they can go raid or whatever they're going to do on someone else. So we've set ourselves up (laughs) for these crazy systems, the mega machine that dominates us. Part of what our cousins, the nomadic foragers, who represent 95% of our history as a as a genus, um, 95% of societies across space and time, they control big egos. So if a hunter is successful and gets a big animal, then all the other hunters will start teasing him and, you know, and say, oh, it's so little, we should go back and try to find a rabbit, it would be bigger. Sorry, Monty. And when they're asked, why do you do that? They say, oh, if we didn't do that, he would become dangerous to us. You know, he might kill us because his ego, he starts to think he's superior, right? And we've got all sorts of psychological experiments now showing that people who have more wealth or more privilege tend to be less empathic with those who don't have as much. Just, you know, power corrupts. So we lost that kind of egalitarian fluid dynamism that is still seen in Central African societies that carry our genes, our our history of our genes. We all, we all have their genetics. And we can still see how they have this dynamic communalism and keep the energy going back and forth between the sexes so that men don't get overinflated and the women get their children's needs met. I wanted to say a couple of things on this is that Again, this neuroscience, which Darsha has been embedded in and worked in at the interface in psychology and neuroscience for so many years, ironically dissolves (laughs) this idea that animals are less than us and that we really are different. The quote unquote difference between us and other species seems to be, I mean, modern, I'll call it modern human since you use that term, is how we use our brains, not our brains ourselves. So when in our chapter on moral commitment, which is about gray wolves, and Darsha, you were just talking about how, you know, the men are kept away from the babies. In the gray wolf chapter, we go into detail about how that the caregiving, and this is also true for the emperor penguins, that the caregiving is integrated across the males and the females. And there isn't these strict barriers per se. It's very communal oriented. And so sort of that thread through here is the misperceptions and also the myths that are promulgated by the scientific community. For example, with grizzly bears, we said, oh, you know, the males will, this is not just grizzlies. They kill the baby so they can mate with the female and perpetuate their genes. And that's been written about with uh, lions. That's really the canon in wildlife conservation and wildlife biology. It's been talked about with pumas and with uh, African lions down the line. 
And yet, when you look at the data, quote unquote, the scientific data, and you talk to people like George Adamson, Charlie Russell, who are very keen natural scientists, Gordon Haber actually had a PhD, was he was the fellow working with wolves for many years. It just doesn't hold water. These myths are totally a projection from our culture. And just to get back to your original question, which I don't think Darsha really got into, Darsha, I'm speaking for you, so you can correct me, but how Darsha has been, quote unquote, dealing with these differences is that she's created an incredible seminal library of very rigorous science. So staying within the, quote unquote, bounds of science to create a very rigorous library, which really demonstrates the thesis of the evolved nest. And then branching out from that or expanding from that, she's done work with, you know, indigenous cultures. So that in the sense in this book is is just kind of a continuation where we're both trying to, you know, push through these myths, you know, just sort of vanquish these myths and bring us into harmony to our natural self. I will make a comment about my own personal experience that being a quote unquote mother at home and taking, you know, all of the evolved nests, that's a kind of a shaming. It's not infrequent. In fact, it's almost in every case when I'm in conversation with a man and he'll be talking about his family and, you know, I'll say, you know, and your wife. And it, it's always said kind of like with a little bit of shame, well, she's a stay at home mom. Like that's like some kind of shameful thing. So I think that's been woven into the narrative, you know, to be a fully fledged citizen, <laughs> fully fledged, you know, human, female, you really have to, you know, not have these kinds of quote unquote natural practices with children. I think this would be a, a beautiful time to lead into talking about the communal values and ethics of African elephant societies and how their young are brought into the world and raised and cared for. And also, if you like, talk about the way sperm whales do that as well. Yeah, I'll begin. And then Darsha, you can you can weave in. Actually, uh, and it's Hal Whitehead and his group, he's a sperm whale scientist, worked with sperm whales for many, many years. He and his colleagues actually called it, what was it, the colossal convergence, <laughs> which was noting the, the parallels and the overlap between elephant societies and sperm whale societies. One's on land, one's in the water. And in both cases, they have this constellation of caregiving which is in the elephants, and it's a parallel in the sperm whale community, is there's a mother who gives birth to a baby. And before she gives birth and while she's pregnant and afterward, there's this community that holds her and the babies. And that aloe mothering or aloe caring is made up of aunties, other older females, siblings, other children, etc. And that continues on. And then there's a second phase where the young males from the natal family, when they're, oh, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, around that time, it varies. They leave the natal family and join what they call an all bull group or bull area. Bull is the kind of colloquial term for an elder male. And then for 15 plus years or more, they are mentored. They live with the other males. And so from a neuropsychological perspective, and Darsha, you might want to talk about that, is that there's this continuity of care 
this continuity of moral development and cohesion. And the same goes with the sperm whales. And there is a porosity, although, you know, they're kind of broken into these stages of, you know, the female caring and then the male caring. There really is kind of porosity. And a lot of that has been missed. But when you kind of zoom out both in time and space, you really see that these are very interconnected communities that are maintained and nurtured generation after generation. Yeah, we see similar behaviors and practices in nomadic foragers, where the mother is well supported when she's pregnant, and even developing a song for uh, the Mbuti. This is Colin Turnbull's work, another Central African group, the Mbuti. The mother will go and and to the forest, which is like a mother to the community, and develop a song for that child, a unique song, and cover her body with flowers and vines and sing about the welcoming that's going to accompany that child when they're born. And the community is right there at the behest of the child and mom deciding when, after birth, when the child is ready to be welcomed into other people's arms. Then the whole community is there. And there's even among some of the, well, I'm not sure, maybe all of them, uh, shared nursing and breastfeeding and mothers together collectively are raising the children, but it's also dads. And usually it's fathers, mothers, and aunties, but you know, the whole community, it's a village raising the child. They don't worry about who the father is, actually. And so we can see the parallels with our animal kin, how our heritage is to also be welcoming, to be a aloe-oriented caregiving society or community. And we've undermined that in so many ways, right, today. Yeah. As I was reading this book, throughout the reading of it, I went into feeling a sense of grieving for the loss of of what could have been, of what life could have been as a child growing up and being raised in an evolved nest, like you talk about, where, you know, children are actually the center of the community, like in these animal communities that you're describing. Whereas in our modern culture, children are viewed more as a burden getting in the way of being productive. And even women for the last few decades have been encouraged to leave the nest, so to speak, and get out there and be productive, you know, pawning off our children on childcare and all kinds of other things to get children out of our hair, so to speak. That's the Western world's thinking that it doesn't matter. The body is separate from the mind, and it's only the mind that counts. Uh, the intellect and the body doesn't matter, you know. And then we have the myth that, you know, it's all genetic. Everything's genes. So if your child's aggressive, it's genes. Rather than, you know, it's epigenetics that shape the expression of genes that that child brings into the world. So we we just have a lot of misunderstanding of children, in part because of technoscience. I also wanted to say that a few years ago, there was a survey of parents around the world and how happy they were. And no parent, there were, I guess in every society, parents were more unhappy than happy being parents, except in Portugal. And when they looked at why that would be in Portugal, extended families raised the children. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And reading this book, it was so clear how powerful, how strong and established the emotional and social intelligence of our animal kin are in contrast to everything that we have lost in that realm. 
Yeah. So we have to change if we're going to save our species and many others. We've got to remember how to raise children so that they are inner guided. So what, what the Western world has done and Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, expressed this, you know, you've got to punish children so that they learn to obey the rules outside of themselves, you know, the adults. And then when they're older, they can force themselves to obey the rules that they pick. Well, indigenous groups are like, what? <laughs> That's insane. You're breaking the spirit of the child, and then you assume that that spirit will come back and be a cooperative member of society? Yeah. That's not how it works, right? And we have got the neuroscience now to support that view. They were so intelligent, our ancestors, our cousins, about what works for human well-being, for the well-being of the community around them, a sense of partnership with the bio community, the animals and plants and waterways and mountains. And we just have lost. So when you undermine the evolved nest provision, you're undermining relational consciousness, this sense of oneness with everything, and you're undermining relational know-how, how to get along with uh, the spider, with the tree, with the people from the other group, with grandma and, and your peer and all these, you know, you need a lot of experience, especially before language starts. So in those early years, with a lot of different relationships so that you are seeding a relational know-how that'll guide you for the rest of your life. Of course, childhood should be an immersion in whole body immersed experiences with others, not sitting at a desk doing worksheets. That's, again, that left brain thinking, oh yeah, intellect, just have some information in your head and then apply it to the world and that's how you are a good person. Uh-uh. I don't think in the animal communities that I've you know lived with or whatever, I don't think that Children are really the focus or the sort of the fulcrum of society. I think it's all integrated in a sense. And there's someone new <laughs> that is brought into the ethos of the community. I remember when I was doing my doctorate, uh, you know, when you do a dissertation or thesis or whatever, you know, it's supposed to be something you do tie it to the past literature, etc. But it's supposed to be something novel, something new. Um, you have to have discovered something new in order to be worthy of entering the academy. And I was thinking about Indigenous societies that I was a little familiar with is that it's absolutely the reverse. In other words, <laughs> that you become a full citizen or whatever you want to call it, member of society, you evolve by coming into the wisdom of the elders. So it's a very different orientation, you know, and I think that's also the same in animal societies is that really the, the baby is learning and being groomed in a sense into the wisdom of the community and the ethos of the community that has brought such stability and resilience for millions of years. Yes, and that's wisdom of nature, right? It's knowing mm -hmm. how to get along with all the animals mm -hmm. and plants and and that in Native communities, it's observational knowledge, know-how knowledge that's passed generation to generation. It's not something new necessarily, although they're rather flexible to be able to react to new things. They're smarter than we are. And so, yeah, there's so much to talk about here. <laughs> I don't think it's a, and I don't think it's a devaluation. This is in this dominant society where the individual is so valorized. And I don't think that individual qualities and personality, et cetera, is ignored. I think it's appreciated, but not in the sense of forfeiting to the community. So, you know, there's that notion of the separatism and, you know, being better than someone and standing out. And that is not really 
viable <laughs> in, in nature, right? I mean, if you stand out, you know, you're, you know, it's like the proverbial thing about the nails standing out, you know, it's really to fit in. You know, that's an expression that Charlie Russell, who lived with brown bears and grizzlies all his life, that's in my book, Talking with Bears. That's what he talked about is that it's really fitting in, learning how to fit in to the rest of the community, which is the rest of nature. Yeah, this is uh, interdependent life ways. The uh, cultural psychologists have identified where you are trying to fit in. You you have uniqueness, but you're always part of the community. In nomadic foraging communities, you can see there's high individual autonomy. They make their own decisions, but they're also very highly communal. They're able to you know dance with the other and enhance their well being. We could say more about that. E. Richard Sorensen talked about it. His word for it was individualistic, unified at oneness. Because <laughs> he couldn't, uh, you know, there's no word for it otherwise. Well, I think that that's one of the difficulties, you know, swinging back to your original question about how do we navigate these two different worlds. Um, that's one of the challenges is language. And because so much of our language, as Darcher just was pointing out with, you know, and the Sorensen is that it's kind of a complicated way of saying, what is oneness? So really, I think the evolved nest and, and this work and appreciating that we're, you know, belong to nature is really helping us move into the vocabulary of nature, which a lot of times is not necessarily verbal. And so that in a sense of adapting and adopting to a way of being one and not seeing things as different. I try to call it, it's diversity, not difference. Diversity is a lot different, you know, not the capital D diversity that's, I mean, I guess that's related to it, but in the sense of, you know, that there are, you know, morphological differences, personnel, all of those things, but those are more like, you know, variations on the theme. And so I think that that's one of the things that's so important. And we hope in this book is to start to, use terms that make sense, that are meaning-making for people. And when things are meaningful and experiential, then they take on a very different kind of flavor in that way. You respond to the earlier mention of child-centeredness. I've distinguished between parents parenting or child raising that is child-centered, which you kind of drop everything and do everything around the child's interests, versus parent-centered parenting where the child has to fit into the parent's schedule. And so you do all the sleep training and various things. But those really are abnormal <laughs> for our species. The kind of species normal or species typical way of raising children is to be life-centered. That means the baby goes with you wherever you go. The children are there with the parents and the adults. There's no separation of age groups and separating out children because they're annoying because they're not annoying in those good circumstances because their basic needs have been met especially when you're in a baby you want to develop a well self-regulated various systems stress response um, the endocrine system oxytocin system for example all sorts of different systems need nurturance the evolved nest or else they get off kilter and then you've got a dysregulated easily triggered child or adult and and then what we've done in the West is that we think that's normal human behavior. They're selfish and aggressive and all that. That's not normal. It can happen. People can become very egocentric, as I said, uh, with a hunter who's successful. But that's where the community comes in, right? So we're always immersed in community from babyhood 
through the end of life, always nested with affection and play and a welcoming belonging, a responsive relationships and nature immersion and healing practices. This is all the nest that we all need throughout life. And one of the things that I still remember from reading Jean Laidloff's continuum concept was, was the expectation that parents had of their young infants. They actually trusted their infants to not harm themselves, not to move toward danger, even though in the foraging process that mothers would, would be out there with their young infants, setting them on the ground near the edge of precipices where the child could easily fall over. But the mothers had this innate trust in the innate intelligence of the child to not go that way, which is in direct contrast with the way parents are relating to children these days in our modern society, where there's just endless amounts of fear of everything that could go wrong. We have uh, intergenerational anxiety passed on that's not been healed. Yeah, so we have a lot of anxious parents who want to control everything. Actually, they tend to, uh, the culture encourages neglecting babies, you know, forcing them into distress by leaving them alone, leaving them to cry, sleep training them, feeding them formula. All these things are very disconnecting. And then the child, you know, has low self-esteem, underconfident. And then the adults move in to helicopter <laughs> because of the seeds they planted, the culture planted in those early months and years. And so it's all kind of upside down and a lack of trust then, even in the parenting, right? Jean Leedloff could not tell her Yaquana friends that back in the States, people read books about how to be a parent. And she was too ashamed to say that. They, they would have laughed and laughed at that, right? And we've lost so much because we don't have the extended family and the community around for the young parents to be able to model how to raise a baby, how to raise a child with respect and for their dignity and trust that their inner inner self, their inner compass will guide them to safety and well-being and a unique unfolding of their spirit. Mm. So I'm curious, considering that we don't have family structures like they do in Portugal, how we can move back toward a more evolved, nested way of raising our children, considering that that we've become so diffuse in our culture. Well, that's a big task for the United States in particular, because the U.S. is really behind other high-income nations in terms of how they pay attention to early life science and the practices and policies that they implement. So if we go through the evolved nest, we need to have you know, parental leave when the mom is pregnant so she can relax, so she can have a sense of support and, and build the support systems in her neighborhood for pregnant women. Birth needs to be not so medicalized where things happen. I mean, the drugs that are given to mother for pain, in part because she can't move around because they've tied her down with an IV or something else, and then the pain gets so great she has to have an epidural, or they've induced labor with Pitocin, for example, even though Due dates are guesses. Babies stay in the womb vary by about 55 days. But the medical community decides they know better, right? And they make it all convenient for them to have the mom laying down or immobilized and end up all the, with these C-sections. And so we need to revamp medical birth. 
make it more naturalistic, not separate mom and babies at birth, not doing painful procedures like infant circumcision. And baby-friendly hospitals are a step in that direction where they're really breastfeeding friendly and they offer support. So breastfeeding has to be a priority. You have to control infant formula advertising that used to be possible. And now with the trade agreements, corporations are really in charge of the world now and you can't do anything against their bottom line. And then there's affectionate touch. We need to emphasize that, not put babies in strollers or carriers or keep them in playpens all day, but carry them around, let them wander. Children need their freedom not to be corralled. Jean Leadloff talks about a Yaquana father who built a little playpen for his toddler, thinking that would be good for the toddler and, you know, set up all these stakes in the forest and put the toddler in there. And the toddler looked around, moved around, and then burst into a horrid scream. And the father realized, oh, this is the wrong thing to do. <laughs> and quickly took the child out and let the child run to the mother and dismantle it, even though, you know, it was kind of admirable, his idea. But he honored that child's independence and wherewithal and their inner voice, their inner guide, right? So we need a lot of that uh, freedom to play. Children need to be playing outside freely, not having ordinances and laws against children being alone out in a park. Parents are getting arrested <laughs> for that. That's crazy, right? And then the community, of course, we want to keep this extended families together, which means you don't want to have corporations in charge of your life where they say, okay, we're going to send you across the country for your job promotion, right? Away from your extended family. So there's just a sense that, you know, families don't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with your children. And we want every worker to be, you know, as if they're single. So the whole country, the whole society has to revamp themselves, to re-understand that babies matter, especially babies, but children in all sorts of ways that we've forgotten. I'll stop. I could go on with other examples of the nest, but maybe Gay wants to jump in. Well, our chapter about brown bears, I think, is really important because the title is Should I Have Children? And in the story of the brown bear, and it's not unique to, to bears, but a, a bear, a female, can become pregnant but does not implant the fertilized egg in the uterus all the time. And it's really, you know, her, you know, evaluating her own inner resources and also the welcoming resources in the environment. So she has to be able to, in cases like it's very cold, like in Russia and in Kamchatka, which is where we describe the brown bear, is that she has to be able to nurse, to be able to bear the children in the hibernation den and be able to nurse and care for them six to seven months. And then when she emerges, uh, she still is nursing. And then she has to be able to be strong enough and have her wits about her psychologically to be able to, you know, protect and care for and teach the children how to fish and, you know, berries. And the environment has to be a receptive and supportive environment. So I think what's germane is now particularly is do we even have the environments in most cases from a perspective of culture and also from the perspective of the environment to really provide the evolved nest for a child? Do we need to sort of reboot as a society, as a species, in order to prepare ground to be able to have children? And as if we look at also, you know, a more expansive view, there are so many children that need homes, not only humans, but also the animal species and trees. 
they're not able to have their own children. They're not able to participate in an evolved nest because humans have devastated their land, you know, raised the Amazon, killed so many. So I think we're really at an important point to pause and say that, you know, having children is not like a given right. It has to do with, are the conditions good enough to be able to provide and also for society? So the need is to stop, you know, to stop the perpetuation of the cycle of abuse and, and violence. Mm. It requires stepping into the right hemisphere's understanding of relationships to understand that everything around you is alive, right? The tree is a being with its own agency. And this is, of course, the indigenous perspective, the Native American, that the waterway in New Zealand, I guess, they've given a river personhood. They've made it legally a person so that it's going to be protected. And so we have to move away from this dead world orientation of the left hemisphere and move back into the you know living, dynamic, flourishing world that we can create when we treat animals and plants with dignity, when we respect waterways, when we feel like they're part of our family, they're our kin. Mm. Instead of chopping down the trees that don't look like they fit in our yard or like the way we tend to straighten out rivers because we are so linearly oriented and we think rivers need to be straight. Uh, <laughs> these, these crazy notions of the way nature should be that we would know better than nature. And sure. when I was reading the chapter on the bears, I reflected on how early on I had decided that I didn't want to have children that I felt like I was way too messed up to have children. And the culture and world we live in is way too messed up to bring a child into. And I'm continually stunned by how many women are bringing children into the world, especially these days. Well, some don't have an option, right? Because of the restrictions now on contraception, on abortion, forced sexual relations. I mean, it's patriarchy. Yeah, but actually around here, Vermont is, is a very liberal state, so people have access to abortion. And I would say there's a considerable less amount of, of over-patriarchal domination of women, at least around here. But maybe because it seems like we're living in an oasis around mm -hmm. here, that women are feeling like it's totally safe and appropriate to bring children in, not just one but two or three children into the world. And it boggles my mind, the idea of bringing a child into this world at this time. And I know that we need children, new beings to bring new perspectives and new hope to the world. But at the same time, I, I feel very ambivalent about all of that. Well, I think we have plenty of new hope. I think there's a sense of responsibility. And I remember when I you know, was just considering whether to have children or not, and I remember people saying, oh, you have to have children, you know, someone like you needs to have children because we need to have children of people like you, which I thought was an appalling, <laughs> appalling statement to make. I think children are commodified. I think it's a very egocentric. I think it's almost sociopathic because there is no consideration for these new beings in the kind of world that they're going to be in. And there isn't the kind of health of the planet that really can support them and be supported itself. The plant and animal communities are dying, and those are our kin. So those are our children. 
And I guess I would encourage people to see, you know, white sharks as our kin and to promote their ability to live uh, and whales to be able to live and raise families and bears, not to slaughter bears, not to slaughter wolves. Basically, and I'll just say that I think it's the dominating society, even outside the United States, is that I call it killing is proof of life. <laughs> in other words, the answer, in fact, I had an exchange, I was somewhat peripheral, but became kind of central to it with a person who's in animal rights, um, he's a veterinarian, and, and he talked about cats are invasive species, and we need to kill them in a humane way. I, I find that appalling in the sense of it's so anti-life. So I think, as Darsha mentioned, this notion of we need to really cultivate a love and commitment to life and really support that, which also includes, you know, as our subtitle says, creating connected communities in our relationships with each other. Build a new, uh, it's not new, it's it's old, <laughs> you know, ethos and, and morality and sense of community that really is positive for each other. And, and really does a lot of the healing, this intergenerational, I mean, the last century was one war, I mean, it's continued. It's one war after another war after another war, there's never been any kind of healing. And we are an anomaly. I think that's really important. That's something that's brought up in the book. We are an anomaly in terms of our culture relative to the human record. And certainly anomalous when we look at the whole membership of nature. So I, I think the question is is less on how do we raise children, although that's central. But the first step to me is also we need to take a pause. We really need to take a pause so we can create a world of health and welcome and all the elements of, of the evolved nest. And in our culture, um, well, for millennia, we have been obsessed with this notion that without religion, society would devolve into a kind of moral chaos could you talk about how morality and ethical behavior already exist in nature and actually arise very naturally from this kind of nested care that you that you talk about? Well, I talk about nomadic foragers and how virtue is just part of how you become a human being. They know that young children aren't quite human yet. <laughs> Humans in the making. Uh, because, the, you know, a two-year-old will will pick up a, even a machete or a stick and come after somebody because they're testing out their capacities. You know, they want to test their abilities and, and you know, hone them to some expertise. And, and But they don't have the wherewithal to understand, to have the empathy or perspective taking on the damage or the harm they might be doing to someone else. And, the, you know, these communities know that, but they, they don't punish the child. They laugh and make a game out of it, you know, and di distract them and and just assume that soon they'll pick up from observation and pitching in how to be a human being. And that's what they do. There's no teaching. There's no like sitting down and telling them you have to do this or that. Uh, that's actually a cause for breaking relationships. If you start to coerce people and tell them what to do, it's just not a thing because you respect the autonomy, the agency of the individual whether a human being or an animal or a tree, right? So you don't just boss them around and coerce them, dominate them. So you can see then that children are raised in a way that allows their inner spirit to unfold 
And that inner spirit, when it's been nurtured and supported throughout those developmental years in particular, and that means till age 30 or so, as it takes that long for our brain supposedly to become adult levels, although we, our brains still go, you know, it's age in the 40s for men, the 50s for women, that your synthesizing capacities are really at their peak. So there's still more stuff gonna that happens after those early years, but it's assumed that you're really not an adult for quite a few, you know, a few decades. Um, and so there's a lot of immersion in models, virtuous models of the community. There's stories about, you know, the trickster and the, the violations and, and how crazy those violations are and how laughable they are if you do certain things that are against nature. So I think we see that virtue then comes about on its own in a supportive community. Yeah, it's like everything in this book is almost completely 180 degrees the opposite of what we have been raised in our culture to believe about ourselves and life and everything. Yeah, and there's more and more studies and admission, like I mentioned earlier, there's all these myths that lions you know, kill the babies so they can mate with the mother and pass on their genes. I mean, that's totally been blown out of the water. Species after species, chimpanzees down the line. And so there's all these myths that have conditioned, you know, sort of like, you know, if you're told to see something in a certain way, you'll see it. So, you know, you see like, oh, you know, there's competition. Well, when you really look at it, there isn't that kind of competition. Killing and eating happens only when you need to, and it's efficient. You know, actually, unless it's for food, out of necessity, the whole thing of killing is a very expensive and dangerous job. You can get wounded. It's a lot of energy. And if you fail, you've wasted that energy. And so really, when you're looking at nature, and we see that for most people, when they're upset, or they, when they feel good, they enjoy walking in non-human nature, they enjoy looking out at the landscape, there's a sense of peacefulness and a sense of coherence. And that really reflects the substrate I would call it the substrate of this common set of ethics and morality, which you see among specific species. They don't just kill for killing's sake. And when they do, as when it's chronicled for wolves, it's because if you look carefully, even among the elephants, the work that I did with PTSD, that is because of severe trauma, which has been human-induced and human-caused. Mm -hmm. Bruce Ferguson, just a few months ago, published a book, Men Born to Kill. He looked at chimpanzee violence and then also talks about human violence too. But in every case, the violence that's been recorded among chimpanzees, and it's important to know this because people say, oh, we're like chimpanzees. There's a whole anthropological strain that orients to humans are violent, males especially. He's been working on it for 20 years at least. But he shows how multiple forms of human intrusion were the causes in the violence that's been observed. So that means humans have provided food like bananas, and then they start to change the culture, or habitat loss, or even killings like what happened with the elephants that we were talking about earlier, and displacement. These are the things that bring about violence, and that's true for humans too. So human societies where you find violence, it's these kinds of things that are typically related. Yeah, in fact, the famous chimpanzee wars, which again, were used as an example of a biological model for human warfare and violence, were because researchers in Gombe gave, I think it was 3,000 bananas a day. 
And then all of a sudden, they started to cut it off. And they made contraptions so that the chimpanzees could only get, and this was all so that they could be close to the chimpanzees to collect data and manipulate. And so that was the foundation really for causing this internecine fighting and and violence. I mean, it's a very disturbing thing. So part of this whole thing is, you know, in in the book and, and our work is really bringing attention to the misuse of science, the manipulation of selective science, not all science, but a lot of the selective use of science to fit a particular socioeconomic and psychological paradigm. And you wrote about traumatized elephants and how dramatically different their personalities become compared to where they came from, from their nested family. And then when elephants are traumatized by humans, which has been very prevalent, um, they become kind of reflections of modern human males at their worst. Yes, they sustained horrible trauma which so many humans sustained. They shot, the helicopters shot down their families. Um, there was this blast from the sky, which is not part of nature's narrative. And they were infants and they saw their families killed and died and they were babies. So they sustained a series of trauma. They were transported in trucks, moved to a place that they didn't know. They didn't have any elders or they didn't have that nurturance, the evolvedness nurturance. And they suffered series of traumas. And so you see this mirroring between animal communities and human communities. And what was outstanding with the elephants, because they killed over 100 rhinoceroses, these young males that had suffered these severe traumas and deprivation. And you're seeing that in other animals. The orcas, for example, that is kind of now sensational in the news about attacking boats off Spain. I mean, the most parsimonious explanation is the severe trauma that they sustain, ranging from pollution to killing to noise. Um, This is submarine noise and lack of food, harassment, etc. And so we're seeing this more and more and more in terms of the attacks. The animals have nowhere to go and they're traumatized. And so we're seeing ourselves projected back and forth in this whole thing. And the only solution is for us to stop what we're doing and, you know, helping heal the earth and helping these animal and plant societies regain ground, regain peace and security and the ability to raise their children in the evolved nest. Let me point out that human boys need a lot more of the nest. They have less built-in resilience compared to girls. And they take longer to mature. So, you know, when they're six, they shouldn't be sent to school. They should still have play as being their primary work (laughs) for the first six, seven years of life. Actually, it should be throughout childhood. That's how you learn best, throughout play, whole body play. But we do the opposite in patriarchy because, you know, boys tend to be punished more. They tend to be told not to cry and all that kind of thing. So then you, you get them stuck, especially if you punish them as a toddler for, you know, exploring and learning, you've got them stuck in the early years. And what's that going to do? Well, Freud kind of pointed out the ways that people get stuck, right? You get obsessed with oral things. So obsession with breasts, I think, that men have. You get obsessed with cleanliness and anal orientation to life. So you want to mow your lawn and have it perfect and pristine, or else there's something wrong with life uh, with you. And you have all these disorders. And part of that, too, is the morality of it, which is my area, is when you undermine the right hemisphere development of social, emotional, ecological intelligence, 
you're now then stuck with the pre-human, the primate ways, the very systems of hierarchy, of domination, because we have those built in. At least this is Paul McLean's try and brain theory, that we have those. And, and when you don't supply the nurturing environment to develop the mammalian aspects of play and care, and then your higher order thinking that's built on these emotion systems later, if you don't have the care and play experiences and all the, the nurturing that is a constant sense of connection and security throughout childhood, we distress babies and put them into despair, into the abyss, into a sense of disconnection, and they're all alone in the world. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to use the older systems that I've got to be the dominant one. And then they get stuck on scripts. They're not flexible because they haven't developed that kind of intelligence, the social-emotional intelligence, the flexibility, and they get stuck in hierarchies. So it's a lot easier in civilized males to force them into being soldiers and being conformists and company men and all the kind of things we think is normal, but it isn't. They've lost their own freedom, their sense of who I am uniquely, and the sense of being, you know, one with everything. And who cares about domination, right? Let's be partners. So they lose that in part because they need more nurturing. And in our culture, our major intellectual thinkers talk about the universe as being a cold and random place, a lifeless universe, which is the exact opposite of the way you describe the nested perspective of the world around us and the universe. So could you talk about how our development, our early relational development leads us in one way or the other? I'll start. So when we raise children in the United States contemporaneously, we are forcing them into disconnection, right? It's like you're off by yourself in your own room, your own crib, crying, all the kinds of things we think is, ah, oh, not a big deal for a baby. You've now established then a sense that there is no dynamic world out there. There's no relational world and, and you're now focused just on surviving. Whereas in our ancestral context, those who provide the evolved nest, you are always connected. You feel connected to mom, and then she is the bridge to your attachment and, and connection to the rest of the human community. You're in the natural world, and you feel connected. You're free to make connections with this tree or that tree, with this animal or that animal, and you have freedom to find your way through the world and build your, con you have deep confidence about yourself and being able to survive whatever comes. But when you're undermined in early life, you have deep fear and terror. You've been terrorized from the beginning. And so you've got to find some ideology, some script that's going to make you feel okay. And then you hang on for dear life to whatever script that is in order to survive. And also getting caught up in the need to validate ourselves through being productive in the ways that our culture tells us to, as opposed to what you talked about as the importance of play. And that play is not just for children, that, that play is kind of a, a relational response and attitude toward life itself. Yeah. And there's a wonderful quote from O. Fred Donaldson. Yeah. Where he says, when we truly play, we are authenticated by all things it enables us to join a universal energy of being in the moment with one another with fearless vulnerability. 
Yeah, isn't that beautiful? That's original play, he calls it. And he's played with wolves and I think bears and other wild animals, as well as with children of all backgrounds. And this is really how our hearts get activated and how we, you know, feel the dynamism of connection that animals already have naturally, right? But humans kind of get off on their egos and get off on on doing things that aren't so healthy or connected. And so we need to return to play, to uh, ceremonies that are playful. With my college students, whatever class I had in the last 10 years, usually a moral development or parenting, I would have them learn folk song games and learn a few of them. And, you know, hunting, we will go, hunting, we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. Now, some of these words I would probably redo now that I'm more a little more sensitive to the animals catching the fox, Ugh, right? But in these games, what you're doing is you're holding hands, you're singing, you're moving, you're looking people in the eye, you're laughing. All that is helpful for people who haven't had enough play for people whose right hemisphere was underdeveloped in early life. And this is developing the right hemisphere, the capacity for empathy, for flexibility, for being able to stop and start your actions. So that's the executive functions. And then what we do, learn a bunch of games, play them in class. Of course, we did other things too. And then we would go play with them with the kindergartners in our early childhood center. And the kindergartners, of course, would just get into it, which delighted the undergraduates who thought, wow, didn't know it was that great <laughs> because the kids really jump and stream and enjoy themselves so much. This is what we should be doing always together. And of course, in our culture, play has a huge competitive element to it. And there's all kinds of structured rules that everyone has to abide by, which to some degree can take all the fun out of it. Yeah, that's right. So those who study play and who encourage play for kids, like Peter Gray of Boston College, are emphasizing free play. And that's what the nest is. It's self-directed free play with multiple age playmates. So not just the same age. You don't learn a lot from somebody that you're same age. You tend to learn rivalry and competition, right? So you need to always be in groups of multiple ages because the younger kids love to learn from the older and the older like to hang out with the younger in our traditional supportive context. And so children's play needs to not be organized sports, but their freedom to climb the tree, to run around the neighborhood, to play chase, to uh, find a little nearby creek and watch frogs or whatever it is. We're losing that because of all the development of wild areas and parents now are so anxious they don't let their children outside the home. There was a book that was written, Laura, Laura Skenazy wrote a book, Free Range Kids, and she wrote that after her 10-year-old had been begging her in New York City to let him find his way home, to drop him off and let him find his way home. Finally, she did that. She wrote about this in a column. He was successful in finding his way on a subway, a bus, you know, all the way home. And she wrote about it and got so much criticism that she wrote this book about how to do it as a parent, you know, let go of all your fear. And then they developed a television show where she helps mothers, primarily, I think, learn to let go and let their children outside. And I watched one episode where the mother is finally convinced to let her children have a lemonade stand. And so she's watching from the window, biting her nails while her kids are in a driveway of this suburban neighborhood. 
with no trees, actually, just houses. And she's worried about them out there. So we have a lot of anxious parents, a lot of screen time and reading time instead of playtime, free play. While you all were talking, I was looking out the window here. I live in the country and we have 11 raccoons and there's six baby raccoons. They're, oh, I don't know, a few months old now. And they are climbing trees and pushing each other off and hanging. And, and it's just a perfect example. You know, when I was saying that, you know, killing is very expensive, I would say, I mean, what are they doing? They're playing. It's obviously very important. And I think there's a real distinction between our obsession on we have to survive as opposed to we have to live. And I see that that's what animals do is they just love life. And their priority is living and life. And it's not survival, which is what we've been entrained into, I think. Yeah. There was an interesting thing in the book about Abraham Maslow and what he discovered with the Blackfoot tribe members that really deeply surprised him. Could you talk about that? Because I think that that's an interesting thing to talk about. He used to be an experimentalist, but spent some weeks with the Blackfoot and observed them one summer. And he found that there was no neuroticism there. Wow, these people are different <laughs> because that's all that psychology was you know, concerned about, all the neuroticism everywhere. And he found that they were focused on living well together and getting along and various things. And that inspired him to focus instead in his work on actualization, self-actualization. What's interesting, though, is that in the Blackfoot community, and there's a paper that points out that he kind of got things upside down. He said that uh, self-actualization was the pinnacle of his hierarchy of needs. And yet in the Blackfoot community, it's the beginning. It's the foundation. You self-actualize, you know, like I've been talking about children, let them follow their inner compass, support them along their way, and let their uniqueness unfold. And the pinnacle for them, instead, the overall aim is community well-being and community perpetuity, so existence into the future. And he kind of didn't pick up on that part, right, because it's so individualistic, his hierarchy of needs. But theirs is not. Theirs is communally based. I love that so much. That seems like in itself reveals kind of the solution to all the problems we've created for ourselves in this culture. Yeah. Could you talk about, because I was thinking in terms of what it would take for us to solve or change the underlying conditions that we're creating or that that's causing the creation of all the crises that that are unfolding today in our world? I think that contemplative study and, you know, prioritizing the, the inner healing, the inner self of our of ourselves and in community. I mean, it doesn't mean we have to be in community. When I say in community, I mean with nature and really tap in and ground in the spiritual world, however one is drawn, whether it's through a formal tradition, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., or just in your own innate kind of way, because that's really the vastness and that's really the connection with the whole cosmos. So I think that that is a priority. And I was thinking about in, in the discussion earlier about time, we give so little time and space, and I mean space in the sense of giving it to each other as, as well as ourselves in terms of this just time of quiet and time of peace. 
And I think that's of such a critical kind of thing to prioritize those things. Like you said, not production, you know, quality, not quantity, <laughs> you know, where quality is calibrated to this notion of consciousness evolution or evolution of consciousness to that of nature's. Mm -hmm. And to add to that, meditation can be good alone, but there is the danger that you're just thinking about your own soul and your own salvation, that this is what the Western world has emphasized for so long, rather than your sense of community. Salvation is about us. It's about the whole place. We are, you know, priests or, or uh, pastors to the well-being of all the life forms around us. So it's really important to have meditation be rooted in that nature connection, in ecological attachment, to feel like you are a vital member of the community whose energy has to be focused on maintaining those relational, respectful relational contributions and not just yourself. So I think that's really important to emphasize. And so our nomadic foraging cousins do these communal ceremonies and the Bushmen, the San Bushmen, who hold the genetic inheritance for all of us, they've been around for 150,000 years at least in Central Africa, and they will have healing ceremonies of various kinds every week and sometimes every day if there is grieving to be done. So the ceremony is where the women usually start it with singing and and then people are in a circle and then there's drumming and you're around the fire and it might go on all night. And there's usually a healer or two or more and everyone is healed. So the healer kind of senses what needs to be healed and the person lays their hands on it. It's all very amazing energy, the nom energy of from, they call it ropes to God, the healers do. And it comes through their body and then out to the group and then shared among the group. And it's quite an amazing thing. And they they say to the Westerners who talk to them, whom they trust, say, well, you guys talk too much. <laughs> you got to dance. You got to sing and dance. And that's how you get in touch with the divine energies of life, not through talking. So there's a lot to learn there. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen teacher, coined the term inner being. And that is really essentially the foundation of the mindfulness and the meditation that he taught and, and his followers or his disciples and students. Interbeing, yeah. The inner the, the in fact he has a, the order of interbeing. So that's that's this idea of deep focusing on the ego, the individual ego and understanding that this is a, a union, that it's an interbeing. A nesting. That's, yes. that's right. Communal nesting. Yeah, right. And we have to get over our obsession with rugged individualism. Yeah, but we push babies into it. We push parents into that, right? We got to stop doing that. Yeah, the way we've set up our society, it's very difficult to escape that. Yeah, it's, we have to go back to having communal experiences from the beginning. There's local futures. I'm speaking at the conference in Bristol, England, in a couple of weeks on uh, planet futures, local futures, Helena Norberg Hodge and her work. And it's about getting back to locality, local wisdom, local living. Instead of, you know, importing this or that from elsewhere, we grow our own food, we, we build our own homes, we take care of one another locally. And that's what we have to get back to. 
And also this reminds me of something in the book of raising our children in direct engagement with their environment, their immediate environment, as opposed to what, you know, sitting down in a chair inside of a building for eight hours at a time. Yeah. Well, that's for all of us, right? Get out there and know your landscape and honor the the native plants and respect the invasive ones too. And um, what we've done in our uh, land here that we treasure is bring in a lot of native plants to encourage the butterflies, the pollinators, the birds, because they're disappearing, right? And we all need to do our part. Wherever we are, we can get back onto the earth, being present to all the relationships we have around us. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful talking with both of you, and I I just love the book. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. We've been talking about The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities with my guests, Darsha Narvaez and Gay Bradshaw. Um, Could you give us your websites where people can find out more about this work that both of you do? EvolvedNest.org. And we have a new film that's just coming out on the Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children. And there are other couple of other short films that I've created too. And our website is karulos.org. It's K-E-R-U-L-O-S.org. Well, thank you again so much. And be well. And you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye, Darsha. Bye-bye.
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.